So the question before, the topic before us today is what Jesus said about you, what Jesus said about you. And you guys got to cut me a little bit of slack because as I thought about that over the last few weeks, I thought, well, arguably everything in the gospels that Jesus taught pertains to us. And so what do you choose uh, out of all the teachings of Jesus that would, you know, specifically apply to what Jesus said about you? And, and, and so I've been searching a bunch of different texts over the last few weeks, trying to think uh, exactly what would be the most appropriate text for what Jesus said about you. And, and I believe, finally, God guided me to the very right text. It was a very personal text that Jesus had or interplay with his disciples in which he was walking down the road, and he literally does look at them at one point, and he says, what about you? Uh, what do you say? So, so let me read it for you. If you brought a Bible with you today, I'm going to be reading out of Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. And by the end of our time today, we're going to work our way through about 10 verses. But I'm going to read the first three now, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. And if you didn't bring a Bible, the scripture is on your outline. It'll also be up here on the screen, cactus and venue for you as well. And dial in uh, to what Jesus asks here of people in, his, in this interplay, and, and then we're going to turn it into some statements on what I believe you would say to us today. So Mark 8, beginning at verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And so dial into this. Two questions. Jesus asked a lot of questions when he was on planet Earth. Two questions that he asks of the disciples here, his closest followers, that I believe are universal in scope and nature. In other words, I believe he would ask the same questions of you and I today. Two questions that we can easily translate into a few statements that Jesus is inferring in these questions here that I think would be very similar to things that he would say about and to you and I today in a very, very personal way. And so if you want to look up right here on the screen, the first question turned into a statement that I think Jesus would say to us here would go like this. You should be very discerning about what culture around you says about me. I put it in quotes because I think that's what Jesus would say about us and to us today. That one of the first things we need to realize in life, right out of the womb, in a fallen world in which our hearts want to know more about God, is that Jesus says you should be very discerning about what the culture around you says about me. So go back to our text. Jesus asks them as they're going down the road, you know, what are others saying about me? And the answers come right off of the disciples' lips. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Interestingly, past tense holy men who had died except for Elijah who was drawn directly up into heaven. And they're suggesting that the crowds are saying that these guys had come back to life now in the form of Jesus to try to teach us really holy and religious things, to teach us about God. This was the best guess that the crowds had as to who Jesus really was. Matthew, in his retelling of this story, adds the prophet Jeremiah. Luke tells us that these are prophets who had come back to life. And so you can almost picture the crowds bickering back and forth as to who Jesus' identity is. 
Some would say, I think he's Jeremiah. No, he's got to be Elijah because Elijah was taken back up into heaven. No, he's got to be one of the other prophets. That's who he is. Don't miss this, guys. They all had opinions about the real identity of Jesus. They all had opinions about Christ, who he was and why he was so special. And they were throwing their opinions at the wall to see if they would stick. And, And yet there's only one problem. And that is that all these opinions have one thing in common, and that is that they were wrong. (laughs) They weren't accurate about Jesus. And Jesus is about ready to state that here, that though he's honored maybe, that they think he's one of the great prophets, that these were just preparatory figures. These were mere men. And as Jesus is going to tell us in a minute, he is much more than this. And so here's the point before we move on. Times never change. I mean, just as much today as back then, we have a lot of views floating around in our culture about who Jesus is. I mean, you hear them on PBS specials, the History Channel, and the ivory halls of liberal academia. Even barroom conversations are filled with people having opinions on who Jesus really was. And the point is, is that when we use the Gospels as our source of truth, and it is the only historical documents we have about Jesus, quite frankly, all the current opinions today have one thing in common, and that's that they fall way short if not becoming entirely inaccurate on who Jesus really is. You know, I've been a Christian for 30 some odd years, a pastor for 25, and, and I think I've heard it all on who our culture today thinks Jesus is. Every time there's some special on TV about Jesus, I'm there. I, I, I've dialogued with a lot of people over the years about who they think Jesus really is or was. And, and as far as I can tell, there's kind of three broad categories of opinions out there today. Look up here on the screen. This might be helpful to you. Uh, One of the first things I heard people say when I first became a Christian years ago is that they said to me, well, well, Jesus was basically a mythical figure. In other words, Jamie, he he never really existed. Uh, Freud called religion kind of a wish fulfillment, an archetypal wish that that there would be a savior figure because we all would like that idea. But, but, But Jesus was made up by people like that. So very similar to Homer's odyssey uh, of two, 3,000 years ago, uh, they say the Gospels are basically like Homer's odyssey. They're wonderful myths, but they never really happened. They were propagated over the years by people who wanted a Savior and believed so badly there would be a Savior that they made one up. And there's people today that really do argue that, that Jesus was a myth. There's only one problem with that, is that when we apply the historical tests to ancient documents uh, to try to discern whether the Gospels are really true or not, they constantly pass all the historical tests we have for their truthfulness. In other words, we know that Jesus existed and that the Gospels are the historical documents that tell us so. I mean, even people that don't follow him agree on that. You're saying, how is that so? Let me give you a a quick lesson on historical documents, ancient documents, and this might be helpful for some of you. When we analyze ancient documents, we're concerned about two things to verify their accuracy. One is how close they were written to the actual events. That makes sense. How close were they? And then secondly, how many copies do we have? Because those copies, as they tend to agree with each other, give us a a sense of confidence in their accuracy. So how close are they to the original events and how many copies do we have? 
And in dealing with ancient documents, it's really a tricky thing because we just don't have all that many of them. So for instance, you've heard of Aristotle. Nobody doubts that Aristotle existed, uh, but the earliest copies we have of Aristotle's writings, copies, mind you, uh, date back to about 1000 AD, which is about 12 to 1300 years after Aristotle existed. And we have about five to 10 copies from that era. But that's actually pretty good. That's actually pretty confidence instilling given how ancient those documents would be that they would be within a thousand years of Aristotle's time and you have five or 10 copies. Here's why we have so much confidence in the gospels and in the New Testament as a whole. And that is that we have 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament all within a few hundred years of the actual events. And even more, some of the fragments that we have from the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of John, date back to about 125 AD, just about 30 to 40 years from the time that John wrote them. We have almost no other documents outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls that would be, give us that much confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. And so when you match up the Bible against, or the New Testament especially, against uh, how we understand ancient documents, we have a tremendous amount of confidence in them. Uh, so Jesus really, it's hard to argue that he was a myth figure, he really did exist, and we have a lot of confidence that he did. So then others have come along and said, okay, he existed, but let's not, not, let's not kind of get in all the miracles and radical sayings. He did exist, but he was basically a moral teacher with really good moral lessons, but not more, more than this. You hear this a lot in more liberal academic circles. They will tell you that Jesus was awesome, that he was one of the best moral teachers this world has ever seen. But let's face it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of embellished a little bit in their writings about Jesus, and, and they wanted to present him as more than he really was. And so the goal is to kind of wade through the Gospels and find out what the real Jesus was like by, by, by kind of getting rid of all the, the, the miraculous stuff that occurs in the Bible. And you're saying, do people really do this? Yeah. I mean, they've been doing this for hundreds of years. Now, Gary Wills is a longtime professor of history at Northwestern University, and in his book, What Jesus Meant, he rightly uh, reveals this reconstruction of Jesus when he comments on Thomas Jefferson, yeah, our president, Thomas Jefferson, and what he did with Jesus and the Gospels. This is revealing. Look up here on the screen. Wills says the Jesus of the Gospels is scandalous, and one of those scandalized was Thomas Jefferson. He was so offended by the miracles and the curses by the devils assailing and defeated that he created his own more acceptable Jesus, exercising all those parts of the gospel that he considered unworthy of a wise man's story. The result, cleansed of all supernatural hocus-pocus, is the tale of a good man, a very good man, perhaps the best of good men, therefore a man who would not pretend to work miracles, to wrestle with demons, or have unique access to God the Father. But Wills goes on to say, Jefferson's revised New Testament is not only much shorter than the real one, but much duller. Nothing unexpected occurs in it. There is, for instance, no resurrection. 
Jefferson's Jesus is shorn of his paradoxes and left with platitudes. He is a man of his time, or even ahead of his time, but not outside of time. You see, that's what Jefferson did with Jesus. He was bothered by the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, and so he just decided to take those things out of the Gospels and reduce Jesus to a really good, wise man. And what you need to know is that that stuff's being done all the time today. When I watch a History Channel special or a PBS special and I hear these experts talk about what Jesus really said, that's what they're doing. They're picking and choosing from the New Testament what they want. And yet the problem with this is, again, we don't do this with any other historical documents. It would be scandalous if we did. Can you imagine me reading the primary documents about the life of Lincoln from the mid-1800s and saying, I think I'll take that, and I think I'll take that, but I don't like that, and so I'm going to get rid of that. I mean, that wouldn't fly. Nobody would accept that. But with Jesus, people are doing that. Jesus would say to you, be very discerning what others are saying about me, because some of them don't like it, and they're going to do whatever they can to make me what they want me to be. Some say he was a myth. Others a great moral teacher. And then there's a third category that you tend to hear again on, on, on television specials and in the uh, ivory halls of academia, and that is that Jesus was a powerful prophet. And they say that Jesus was more than a good, wise man. He was actually a really religious and holy man. He probably knew God better than anybody else. He spoke God's truth. He shook things up. He rattled cages all around him. He gave us powerful religious truth to live by. And again, when you hear that, you think, well, gosh, Jimmy, that's all good and fine, right? I mean, what's wrong with that? Notice how they conveniently omitted that he was the incarnate son of God come to take away the sins of the world. I mean, it's deceptive. It's subtle. To say he's a holy guy, probably the most holy, is wonderful. But who was he in his essence? Just like 2,000 years ago, when people first asked, or Jesus first asked the question, who do people say that I am? There's some that want to relegate him to prophet-like status, and though he's honored, he's going to tell us that he is much more. Who do people say that I am? Some say a wish fulfillment. Some say a great teacher. Others say a religious leader and a prophet. Times really haven't changed. They were doing it 2,000 years ago. They're doing it today. So one of the first things Jesus would say to you and I, really about you and I, is that we should be very discerning about what the culture around us says about Jesus. Because really, at the end of the day, we want to understand him rightly. Now, with that understanding, uh, and as we wrestle with that in our own lives, I think that Jesus would quickly then move on, based on the text before us, to say a second thing to us. And the second thing that comes in the form of a question, we could put into a statement like this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that Jesus would say, I hope, however, that you can see me for who I really am. I think that's what Jesus walked around Palestine helping people understand when he was on this earth. Who do the crowd say that I am? Well, here's the myriad of answers. But then he looked at his disciples and he said, but what about you? 
Who do you say that I am? Thus implying to you and I, I hope you can see me for who I really am. So look at verses 29 and 31 of Mark 8, and notice how Peter, one of the more ambitious and insightful followers of Jesus, answers this second question of Jesus's. Look up here on the screen. It says, and he, Jesus, asked them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Then skip down to verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days later rise again from the grave. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus gives a very short but direct answer here uh, to Peter's uh, response that you are the Christ. He says, yep, I'm the Son of Man. I want you to dial in to those two phrases there because those are key. Peter's onto something and Jesus is affirming something about the real identity of who Jesus is. First, notice that Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, when you read verse 30, I skipped it there. Verse 30 says, basically, Jesus says, you're right. Don't tell anybody yet. We're not revealing this yet. But Jesus affirms that he is indeed the Christ. Within a Jewish Old Testament understanding, that word Christ is a loaded word if there ever was one. It literally means the Messiah, the anointed one. But when used as a title, the Christ, it's referring to the one person that God promised would come to be the final deliverer for Israel and even hinted to opening it up, salvation up to all the Gentiles. This is the one who was going to bring peace to Israel. This is the one who was God was going to use to bring salvation to God's people and open it up to the entire world. And yet what Peter and the disciples didn't know right then at that time was what they thought the Messiah was going to do was so much more than they could have ever imagined. They thought the Messiah was going to come like King David or King Solomon or even one of the prophets. That's why they thought Jesus was a prophet and kind of set up shop in Jerusalem and take over Jerusalem once again and bring back the glory days of the United Kingdom from the, from the Old Testament. And yet Jesus wasn't going to do any of that at this time. Jesus made it clear, and it's in this text here, that his job was to go to a wooden cross, die for the sins of humankind, on the third day rise again, thus proving that he was God come in the flesh, and then ascend to heaven to usher in a whole new age of spirituality and access to God through what Jesus has done for us. Peter nailed it. You're the Christ. And Jesus was just about ready to show them what this Christ is all about. But before that, notice that Jesus fills in the gaps even more. Now, this is very fascinating. By referring to himself, and some of you caught it, as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man. This is so important because I, I, I would submit to you, if you ask the average, question, or ask the average Christian today, who did Jesus mean, what did Jesus mean by calling himself the Son of Man? The average Christian today couldn't answer that question intelligently to save their lives. I don't think the average Christian today really knows what Jesus meant by the Son of Man. But here's the deal. I think the disciples did. They knew the Old Testament. They knew what this phrase, Son of Man, meant. And this was revolutionary for them at this time. So let me explain. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament, Daniel was a great prophet, uh, he gives a prophecy 
of the Son of Man. And let me read it for you. Look up here on the screen, Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a, here it is, Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Whoa. So the Son of Man uh, clearly is talking about God. I mean, the Old Testament prohibited worship of anybody else but God. Only God was assigned that kind of dominion. Only God was assigned that kind of sovereignty. Only God would get that kind of glory. So, so the Jews were waiting for this Son of Man who would be God coming to redeem them and to save them. And Jesus declares himself there the Son of Man. And lest you have any doubts that this is what this phrase means, Mark uses this phrase, Son of Man, in his gospel 14 times. And in each occurrence, almost all of them used by Jesus, it builds one upon another to give us a picture of Jesus' identity as God come to earth. Let me show you. Look up here on the screen. Mark 2, verse 10. Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, and then he healed him. So who forgives sins? God. Who is Jesus? The Son of Man. Mark 2, verse 28, Jesus says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Who's Lord of the Sabbath, according to the Old Testament? God. Who is Jesus? The Son of Man. God, Lord of the Sabbath. Then look at Mark 8, verse 38. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. <laughs> Mark 9, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then Mark 10, 45, this takes the cake here. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would come as the Son of Man, God come in the flesh to give his life for you so that your sins might be forgiven and you might be able to walk rightly with God. So who is Jesus really and truly? Now we're ready for a direct answer based upon these two self-identified titles of Jesus, the Christ and the Son of Man. Here it is. He is the Deliverer God come to forgive you from your sin Come to come to forgive you from your sin and give you life and freedom now. That's who Jesus is. And notice two things in there. He has come to forgive you so that you can have a right relationship with God, so that your prayers are heard, so that you can wake up each morning. And as Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning upon you. You have a new lease on life. And then he also came so that you might have life and peace even now. That's who Jesus is. He is God come for you. And he wanted each of us to not buy in to the culture around us and what it says about him, to be very wise and discerning and to see him for who he really is. The Son of Man, the Christ, come for you. So what would Jesus say about you? You need to be discerning. 
And you need to see him for who he is. Now, here's where we have to be very careful. There's an old saying that all of us have heard, and that saying is, two out of three ain't bad. How many of you have heard that saying? Almost all of us have. That saying, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, is like music to your ears, right? Like if the Browns win two out of three ball games, that's like a major victory, and you say two out of three ain't bad. But there's other aspects of life in which two out of three is bad because you're not done yet. And with what Jesus has to say about you and to, to you, if you stop right where we are right now, it will be terribly insufficient for you. And by the way, this is where most Americans stop. Uh, most Americans stay because we still live kind of on the, the, the coattails of Christendom and an awfully Christian nation, though that's changing fast. Most Christians say, if you were to say, uh, do you think that Jesus is unique? They'd say yes. If you said, do you think Jesus is the Son of God? Almost every poll, people say yes. But then if you say, do you have a vital, daily, interactive relationship with Jesus Christ in which he is your Lord and your Savior and your everything, they say, what? Repeat that again, would you? Because that's not even on their radar. And yet, here's what I need you to see. That's exactly where Jesus goes next. Because here's the third thing Jesus would say to you and me today, and that is that I invite you to place your trust in me and follow me all the days of your life. You see, Jesus doesn't want two out of three. He wants the third thing as well. And you're saying, how do you know that? I'm going to read verses 34, 35, and 36 to you right now. They're very common passages among Christians today. I hear them quoted all the time. But I'm not sure most Christians realize that the passage that we're just about to read are couched in the context of what we're looking at today. In other words, the passage about to read is right on the coattails of who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The Christ, the Son of Man. Look at what Jesus says next. Look at verses 34 to 36. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? Wow. On the coattails of a right understanding of Jesus' identity as the Christ and the Son of Man come for you, he says, I need you to hand over all of your life to me. I need you to believe in me, trust me, and here's the operative word, follow me. I mean, there's three things Jesus tells us to do there. Did you catch them? They're they're, they're actually life-changing but incredibly radical things. The first thing he tells us to do is to deny ourselves. Rick Warren nailed this in his very popular book, The Purpose Driven Life, where the opening words of the book were, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. Uh, We think life is about us. It's not. Life is about God. As we're seeing today, life is about Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is that if you're only focused on yourself, if you're only focused on your own needs, you'll never find him. You need to deny yourself, get your eyes off yourself. And then what's the second thing he tells you to do? Take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, the cross, as we know, was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of condemnation. It was a symbol of putting to death something so that life might begin to happen. As Larry Crabb would say, it's about detaching and attaching. So Jesus says, deny yourself, get your eyes off yourself, and then put to death 
certain things in your life that are all about yourself. Take up your cross. And what's the third thing he says? Follow me. Become somebody whose life centers around me in daily submission, trust, yielding to me, giving me the right of way each moment of each day. You see, that's salvation, folks. When you and I finally get to the point in our life where we say enough shenanigans, enough game playing, enough lip service to God, I'm going to take Jesus at his word and not buying into what culture says, and I'm going to follow him with everything in me. And so I love how William Lane in his commentary on Mark says it. This is powerful. I think he nails it. Look up here on the screen. He says, Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. The central thought in self-denial is a disowning of any claim that may be urged by the self, a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. I love how he says it there, to, to, to shift the center of gravity. That's a wonderful word picture. You and I have spent way too much time in life leaning on all the wrong things. Amen? We lean on our jobs, our 401ks, our family. We're codependent with our kids, with culture around us. We lean on so many things. He's saying, Jesus comes along and says, we've got to shift the center of our gravity doesn't mean you get rid of those things. It means that now you're leaning more on Christ and who he is for you than anything else. And the cool thing is, is that Jesus says, if you're willing to make that shift, you're going to find your life. You think it's the opposite. You think, well, gosh, I'm denying myself. I'm taking up a cross. I'm going to lose all this stuff. He says, no, you're actually going to find life, find joy, find peace by following him. So those who want to save their life by listening to culture, well, you're not going to find it. You're actually going to lose it. But if you want to find your life, he says, follow me. And as you do so, you're going to find what your soul is longing for. What would Jesus say to or about you? He'd say, be discerning. Care enough about your soul to not just buy into everything you hear. See him for who he really is. And then when your eyes become enlightened, as Ephesians 1, 1 says, then just make a decision to follow him. And as you follow him, you're going to find the life that your soul is longing for. So here's what we're going to do in a time remaining today. We left some time at the end of our services here today uh, to basically help some of you who are ready to make some decisions. And so I'm going to talk to you about two decisions right now that I think some of us need to make here today. You're only going to make one of them, but two different kinds of decisions that need to be made here today. The first decision is a decision that some of you are ready for, and that is to accept Jesus Christ, to believe in him as the Christ, as the Son of Man, for who he really is, for the very first time this morning. I got to tell you a quick story. I, I, I grew up in a home that, as I've said to you guys a thousand times before, you know, was, was I guess, by American standards, Christian. I, I mean, we went to church twice a year, and I thought that was pretty good. And, and, and you know, Christmas and Easter, we were there. And, and if you would come up to me when I was in high school and say something like, you know, are you a Christian? I think, well, I'm not a Turk, so of course I'm a Christian. I mean, what, what else could I be? I mean, I'm not, I'm not Islam. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Buddhist. 
uh, atheism wasn't really around as much back then. And so I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm an American. I go to church a couple of times a year. I'm a Christian. But boy, was I wrong. When I was 17 years old and I started investigating the claims of Jesus Christ like we're doing here in this series, I realized I'd just been playing a bunch of games. I wasn't denying self. I wasn't taking up any cross. And I certainly wasn't following him in my daily life. And I had a decision to make that even though I thought I was in, (laughs) I had to be honest with myself and say I wasn't. And it was the most liberating decision I've ever made in my life to accept Jesus Christ for the first time. Some of you here today, some of you at Cactus and Venue are ready to do that. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a minute. But then there's another type of decision that needs to happen here today. And that is that some of you have been in, you've clearly accepted Christ. Maybe you went to Awana or you grew up in a Christian home or even here you accepted Christ a few years back or what have you. Uh, But as you've accepted Christ, you've not followed through on following him. Uh, Don't miss this. You've believed the right things. (laughs) It's just that you never really engaged your will and your heart in such a way to truly follow. And you're seeing today that a huge part of your salvation is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're ready today to recommit your life to him and make this a day you will never forget. We're going to give you a chance to do that in a minute. I'm going to lead you all here in the, in the Shea campus in a couple of prayers to make those decisions, those commitments here in just a minute. But Pastor Rick and Pastor Rustin at our Cactus and Venue are going to lead those congregations personally in similar prayers. So let me pray right now to, to dismiss them, and then we're going to have a little time of commitment here right now. So Father, thank you for the words of your son, Jesus Christ. We, we love him, and we're so grateful that you sent him. And Lord, we're seeing him, some of us, in a new light today for who he really is, the one who came for us. And so, God, as we enter into this holy time now of commitment, would you bless this time and be honored, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to lead us in praying right now. The way we make commitments around here at our church is through prayer. That's it. I'm not going to ask you today to walk an aisle. I'm not going to ask you to fill out a card. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because as I've prayed and thought about today, I want this to be a very personal moment between you and God. I hope that if you do make a decision here today that you tell somebody. I really do. Because a decision that you might make here today to receive Christ for the first time or to recommit your life to him, as the Bible says, shouldn't be hid under a bushel. (laughs) But it's something that you should also make known. And so as you have a personal time with God, I hope that you share this with somebody today or later. But what I like to do now is go into a time of prayer, and then when we get done praying, if ever you had a thought of leaving church, don't do it now, because Troy is going to lead us in a response time of worship that is going to send us out in a very profound way. So let's do this. Every head bowed and every eye closed, including mine. Every head bowed and every eye closed, and we're going to enter into a time of prayer. And there are some of you here right now this morning that are ready to receive Jesus Christ for the first time. You maybe have seen him as a special man, maybe even a really holy man, maybe even the Son of God come for you, but you've never made the decision to follow him with all that is in you. And so you'll pray something similar to this. God, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you've never given up on me, that your grace has been upon me from birth because I'm your creation made in your image. Lord, I realize I'm a sinner 
who has fallen and distant from you in need of grace and that your grace has come to us, come to me through your son, Jesus Christ. And I accept him. I believe in him. I trust him as my sin bearer, as the only one who can secure for me a place in heaven. And I choose to follow him from this day forward all the days of my life. Thank you, God. There's some of you here as well today that have prayed a prayer like that to receive and follow Christ, but you've, you've never gotten to the point right now where you've really have been all in. You've been playing games. You're ready to recommit your life here today and to start afresh. So let me pray with you now. Father, I thank you that you are a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth chances. Seven times 70, you forgive. You welcome prodigals home. You welcome tax collectors into your kingdom. And God, you're a God of immense grace. And Lord, there's some of us here today that have strayed from you over the years. We haven't followed faithfully. But today, we're ready to re-up, recommit our lives to you. So Lord, where we sit, we do that. And Lord, we ask that you hear our prayer of a contrite heart that's ready to follow you and to take you up on your words that if we follow you, if we lose our life for you, we will find it and we will save it as it's hidden in you. Thank you that you receive us back. We look forward to the journey from this point on with you. God, I thank you that you are a God who, as Romans 2, 4 says, uh, gives us your kindness so that we might repent and gives us your kindness so that we might know you and follow you. It's based on your kindness that we pray these prayers today thank you that you hear us. Receive our worship now and the cries of our heart. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together.